Well, good morning, church. Okay, so I spent early this morning, um, those of you who don't know uh, what I do, I'm the senior chaplain for basic military training on Lackland, and we have about 3,000 or so trainees every Sunday morning that go to worship and another 1,500 that are going to Bible study, and I had a chance to be with them a little this morning, and their energy level was absolutely infectious this morning. So um, there's no way I expect you to match that, um, but if let's try that again. Good morning, church. That's... Thank you, sir. That's, that's, that's a little better. But boy, I'll tell you what, um, uh, it, it absolutely um, is a refreshment for me every time I get a chance to go and, and see um, 18, 19, 20-year-olds uh, worshiping Jesus Christ. Um, and I wish you could get a taste of that, um, but uh, it's a real honor to be able to, do, uh, be able to oversee that and do my job. So um, right now, if, if I haven't met you before, my name is Keith Mannery. I'm your interim preacher. Uh, uh, in this process as we are um, going through a process of um, seeking God's will for our next uh, pastor here at Calvary Hills Baptist. And so uh, over these uh, months that we're together, uh, we are doing um, sermon series that are intentionally a little shorter. We're in the book of Revelation right now, and the reason that I'm not preaching through the entire book of Revelation is not because I don't believe it should be done. I absolutely believe it ought to be done, but because I'm intentionally keeping sermon and series shorter so that I'm ready to step aside at any time um, if, when, that, when that man is chosen um, and is able to join us. So we are in a seven-week series dealing with the seven letters to the church in Revelation. I also want to say, um, I mentioned last week, sometimes I think I say things and I'm not sure they are um, interpreted correctly. When I mentioned that I don't like to preach from the Psalms, it doesn't mean that I don't preach from the Psalms, okay? Just to be clear on that, I have preached series from the Psalms. I'm not a person who um, enjoys poetry as much, or it's not that I don't enjoy it, it's that my mind doesn't work that way. And so um, if, if I gave a, the impression that I don't, I don't ever touch the Psalms, that's not the case. If I were your pastor, you would see that I endeavor to preach through the entire counsel of God and Word of God, even the books and even the types of Scripture that I I have a hard time preaching from. Um, and so I just want to make sure I made that clear this morning. So we are in the book of Revelation. Um, as a little bit of an introduction, we're going, to talk, we're going to be talking this morning about tribulation and about persecution. And, and I don't think um, uh, there are many better examples of tribulation and persecution than some of the, the stories that we've heard um, coming out of places like Syria um, and Afghanistan over the past few years. And there's, there's one story I want to share with you in particular. Uh, Kayla Mueller, you've probably heard her name or maybe you remember seeing her picture or hearing her story on the news. She was a 24-year-old uh, student from Arizona. She was involved in campus ministry and she was heavily burdened by the humanitarian crisis that was taking place in Syria. She'd heard about the, the hundreds of thousands of people that had died, the, the refugees, the things that were going on there. And she said to her parents, Mom, Dad, it's not enough for me to just pray. I need to do something. I know God is calling me to be involved in some way. And so in um, 2013, she traveled to a Doctors Without Borders hospital where she intended to make a difference. Sadly, the very next day after she arrived, she was kidnapped by ISIS. And the touching correspondence of a letter that she wrote um, back to her family um, is really moving. This is, this is what she said. She, she apologized to her family for the suffering they were going through because of her captivity. And her letter included these words. I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I've come to a place and experience where in every sense of the word, 
I have surrendered myself to our Creator because literally there was no one else. She concludes the letter, Please be patient. Give your pain to God. I know you would want me to remain strong. That's exactly what I'm doing. Do not fear for me. Pray to, or continue to pray, as will I. By God's will, we will be together soon. In February 2015, after about 18 months of captivity, officials confirmed that Muslim extremists had, in fact, murdered Kayla. While Kayla may not have been murdered because of her Christian faith, her determination to remain strong and her surrender completely to God, they ought to serve as an inspiration to us. Throughout the history of Christianity, it's men and women like Kayla and others who have drawn us to the words of Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, which we're going to look at this morning, when Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this morning, we're, we're continuing on in this series, and we, we find ourselves in the letter to the church at Smyrna. I, I want to I tell you a little bit about Revelation, some, so a little bit of um, information that we covered last week in case you weren't here, and I'm also going to give you something else, um, a freebie that's not in our notes. Those of you, the uh, person that's following along in the slides, I apologize to you for this, but there are a, a few different ways you can interpret the book of Revelation. Okay? They generally fall into four different camps. You have those that are called the predators. These are people that believe that most of the events of Revelation have already occurred. They, they, most of them happen in the first century and they're over. There are also people that are futurist, that believe that all Revelation is about the end times. It's about future events. There are some that, that call themselves idealists. They see everything in Revelation as being symbolic of timeless battles, for instance, between good and evil. I don't fall into any one of those camps, by the way. I find myself more closely identifying with what we call histor historicist. Those that believe that, that the events of Revelation began at the island of Patmos and conclude at the, the final end times. And so I see, personally, I see Revelation throughout the course of history, and I see the events there. Now, we're not going to get into all that interpretation, but I wanted you to know some of the ways people think about the book of Revelation. The author of Revelation is the, we believe, the Apostle John. There's been a little debate over time, but, but most credible scholars now believe this is the Apostle John himself. He, he wrote it at, while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. It was written around the end of the first century, and it's written to seven churches, in particular, real churches that existed in the first century that were in Asia Minor. And as I mentioned last week, if you were a mail carrier, you would have actually delivered those seven letters in the same way that they are presented to us in chronological order in the book of Revelation. I also talked to you last week about the purposes of Revelation, and I suggested to you that there are a couple of main purposes. The purpose, uh, first of all, is to show God's sovereignty in history and the promise of the culmination of all things in him. And second, Revelation seems to encourage the faithful to remain faithful even in persecution. You see, while Revelation points to the end times, I think it always still has application to us today as well, and it absolutely did to the first century churches that are addressed there. So let's turn in our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Revelation chapter 2. We're only reading four verses this morning. It's the, the letter to the church of Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. And if you'd like to stand with me as we read, these are, these are Jesus' words to this church. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I apologize. I started in verse 1. Go down to verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, as we open your word this morning, we pray that we would have ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use your word, which is, we're told, sharper than any two-edged sword, to penetrate our hearts this morning, perhaps to, to give us the strength and the courage to make it through tribulations we are facing, but Lord, we pray that you would also prepare us for tribulations that are to come. May the words of my mouth now and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. If you have those bulletins that were uh, that you got this morning, either on the way in or that were passed out, if you flip to the back side of it, there's an outline there. I've been challenged, especially in the book of Revelation, because there's a lot more I could put on those outlines than what I'm able to fit in the characters that we find. Last week, I think I actually reached the maximum number of characters, I was told by Sherich, that I could fit on the bulletin. So it's not quite as bad this week, but there's still a lot there. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to divide the message into four primary areas. We're going to talk about the correspondence first, then we're going to look at the commendation, we're going to talk about the counsel, and we're going to talk about the comfort. How do you like that alliteration there? Um, the, commend the correspondence, the commendation, the counsel, and the comfort. So let's begin in verse 8 as we identify the various pieces of the correspondence. First, we know this is written to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And last week, I told you that, that the angel may mean an actual literal angel. Some scholars believe that's the case. And if that's the case, an angel was given responsibility over this church. Many other commentators and scholars think that when the, a book of Revelation addresses the angel of the church, that it's talking about the pastor of the church. And if that was the case, it would have been Polycarp who was actually the pastor of the church in Smyrna. So to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Smyrna, this is the, this is the city that is addressed. Now, uh, Smyrna was a city that was established around a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And around 400 years after it was founded, the city of Smyrna was leveled. It was destroyed in battle, and it would remain essentially dead in non-existence for about 400 years. It was about 200 BC when Smyrna literally was reborn. And I want you to remember this, they died and now Smyrna has come back to life. That's going to become significant even as Jesus identifies himself in this text. And when it was rebuilt, Smyrna was designed and it was planned in such a way that, that it literally surrounded a mount, a Mount Pagus as it was known. And, and, and the way it did so was almost like a crown around this mount. 
Smyrna thought of themselves because of their beauty as the crown city. We're going to talk about a crown in a few moments as well. All these things have great meaning, and the way that even Jesus chooses to identify himself to these texts means something, because when the church heard it, they, they understood things that, that you and I need to understand. If you'd walked the streets of Smyrna in the first century, you would have found a gymnasium, a stadium, a theater, a, a beautiful harbor, a library. And, and if you had visited with its citizens, you would have discovered people that had some municipal pride. They loved Smyrna. You see, Smyrna was, was known as the flower of Asia. It was known as the crown city of the, of the uh, entire region. The people of Smyrna thought that they were the be-all and end-all. They had been destroyed in battle, but they had come back to life. Like, they're a big deal. Their claim, one of their claims to fame is you may have heard of the poet Homer. Homer is thought to have actually been born in Smyrna. Smyrna is a big deal, and the people of Smyrna knew it. Beyond its architectural and geographical beauty, Smyrna was known for its religious diversity. This was a city that was all about religious tolerance. There were all sorts of gods to be worshipped in Smyrna. It was the epicenter of religion. If you wanted to worship a god, just come to Smyrna, and you're bound to find a temple to that god in Smyrna. And so, so they, they, they were all about uh, being religious, Zeus, Cybel, Aphrodite, Dionysius, all and more were worshipped in Smyrna. In addition to a multitude of religions, Smyrna was also the epicenter, if you will, of the imperial religion. We talked about Ephesus last week being the epicenter of the first century church. Well, imagine Smyrna as the capital of religions for the region. Roman emperors, as we talked about last week, were worshipped during that time. And, and they, they were thought to become gods when they died. And so not only were all of these gods worshipped in Smyrna, but, but the emperors were worshipped there as well. And what's interesting is we know that in the year AD 23, a contest had actually been held by the Roman Empire in order to choose a city that would have the privilege of building a temple to Domitian, who was the emperor during that time. I can't help but think of perhaps this, this word went out to all the cities throughout the region, and much like we do today, maybe Amazon. You remember a few years ago they were competing to determine which city would have the honor of, of bringing Amazon in. Eventually it went to Crystal City in Arlington, Virginia, right? Huge headquarter. They were looking at all sorts of cities in the country and in the region there in particular. Maybe it's, maybe it's something like the, this U.S. Space Force that, that, that went out to various cities and to determine where they were going to put their headquarters. And the cities knew that if they got the headquarters for the Space Force, it meant all sorts of money and all sorts of jobs. It was something like this for this temple. The word had gone out and all the cities competed for who was going to get the honor of building this temple to the emperor, and Smyrna won that bid. Smyrna built the temple to Domitian. So when it comes to the imperial cult, Smyrna was all in. And it's there in this religious city, that the center of emperor worship, that a church had been planted. The church may have been a church plant by the Ephesian church. We can assume that it was the result of Paul's ministry. You remember Paul, we're told, was, was spent somewhere around three years or so in Ephesus. And, and by the time of this letter, this church, however it ended up being planted there, was in one of the most difficult places on the face of the earth to be a church at this time. Look at your text with me again. The text says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, 
the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Who is the first and the last? It's Jesus Christ, right? Think for a moment about the way he identifies himself there. He's talking to a people that think that they are the, the first and the last, if you will. They're a big deal. And he says, no, I'm the first and the last. I am, in Revelation 1.8, Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and Omega, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. And now pointing back to that truth again, Christ reminds these readers that he is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the omega, the last letter. He's saying from A to Z, everything, everything is about me. Everything began with me and everything will end with me. All things find their fulfillment, their consummation in me. He's the author of life. There's nothing before him and there will be nothing to follow him. He's sovereign over all of time. And to the church of Smyrna, who undoubtedly questioned whether God was still in control at times in the face of their persecution, Jesus says, I have never once abdicated my throne. I am eternally sovereign and there is nothing that happens outside of my knowledge and my will. Maybe you need to hear that message this morning in your life. Maybe you need to remember that there is nothing that's going on in your life that is outside the will and the control of God. Nothing. He's still sovereign, just as he has always been. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He continues. He died and came back to life. Now, Jesus is speaking, remember, to a city that died and came back to life. And they're proud of it. And he says, I'm the only man that has ever died and come back to life. I'm not only sovereign, but I'm the God who suffered at the hands of persecutors. We're going to talk in a minute about how this city is being persecuted. Jesus says, I've gone through persecution. I died, but then I did what you cannot do on your own. I was resurrected from the grave. Jesus conquered death and Satan, and these facts could not have been more relevant to the Christians at Smyrna who were experiencing persecution. To this church, Jesus identifies himself in a way that speaks to their deepest needs. To the church that was suffering, Jesus says, I know how you feel. I know what you're going through. I suffered myself. I'm acquainted with your grief. And that brings us to the commendation. If you're following along in your outlines, unlike the church in Ephesus, there's no correction for this church. There's no criticism. Look at the text again. This is what he says, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. As we begin to read this letter, what we find is not a promise of relief. Right? If I were a Christian in the city of Smyrna at the time, and I had been going through persecution and trials, and I'd been praying and asking God for, for an answer, for deliverance, to keep my family safe, if I'd gone to the mailbox one day, and I got a letter, and I saw that my name was in the, the addressee block, and, and I looked up in that top left-hand part of the envelope, and it was from the throne room of God, none other than the Lion of, the lion of Judah, the, the Lamb of God, and I opened it, I would have hoped that Jesus would have said to me, it's going to be okay. I'm going to deliver you from this. But guess what? He doesn't. Instead, he commends them for what they're going through and, and seems to indicate that it's going to get even worse. Someone once said Jesus never promised to deliver us from the storm, but he does deliver us through the storm. I think there's a lot of truth in that. 
Have you ever prayed and asked God to deliver you from a situation? Have you ever prayed and asked God to heal someone that you love? And then the answer was not what you wanted. The answer was not the healing you had asked for. One of my staff members right now, his wife is, was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer in the end of November. And very a young family, there's only a hundred and some odd people that have ever struggled with this cancer. And over the past six months now, we've watched as she has continued to get worse. As of last night, she was in the hospital with severe dehydration because she can't keep water down right now. We've been praying for her. Our staff has been praying for her. Her husband's been praying for her. And this morning, I don't know whether God's answer is going to be what we want or something else. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in those places where you're, you're praying and, and God doesn't answer quite the way you want him to answer? But what he does do is he gives us grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 reminds us that in our weakness, God gives, uh, our weakness gives God the opportunity to allow his power to be made perfect. When we're in those moments of greatest stress, when the trials and the tribulations, they weigh us down, we want to be delivered. And, and I can't help but think that the church of Smyrna, man, they, they must have really wanted to be delivered. They're suffering for their faith. They desired deliverance, but Jesus doesn't come along and make a promise to remove them from this. Rather, he promises to reward them, which we're going to see in a few verses. Let's look at the three things he commends them for. First of all, for persecution. The word here literally means tribulation. It means oppression. It means affliction. It means trouble. The Greek word gives the, gives the idea of the pressing together as of grapes. Tribulation and its place in Revelation and in the end times has occupied an enormous amount of conversation and been the cause for the spilling of great amounts of ink. Over the years, Christians have disagreed about the place of tribulation and how it will play out in its final days. There are post-millennialists, pre-millennialists, amillennialists, pan-millennialists. You say, what's a pan-millennialist? That's someone who says it's all going to pan out in the end. Sorry. And in case you don't know the difference between the, the three major camps, it's okay because they're not as important as those who argue about them make out. I'm sorry if you like to argue about that. In the end, what should matter to you is that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life and that you're doing everything you can to get other names in that book as well. Because God is sovereign over the end times. And I can promise you, no matter how you interpret tribulation and no matter what camp you fall into, you don't have it all figured out. One day we'll, we'll find out. You're, so if you're a premillennialist today and you're sitting next to a postmillennialist, it's okay. This morning, what I want you to consider, though, is what was on the mind of that church in Smyrna when Jesus said he knew their tribulation was not some future thing that they were imagining and trying to interpret. Because here's the thing, the church in Smyrna didn't have to think about how tribulation might look. They didn't have to think about how things might end. No, they didn't need to write novels about being left behind. They didn't need to make movies about the mark of the beast. They knew tribulation firsthand. They were living the words of Jesus in John 16, 33, when he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. Smyrna knew persecution, and they knew it well. 
Last week, we touched briefly on what was inspiring persecution, but let me revisit that with you. In AD 70, the temple had been destroyed. Jews had been dispersed. And as they began to lose their position and respect in society, they did what most people do when they are threatened. They closed ranks. They circled the wagons. They focused inwardly, and they found that there were Christians among them who claimed to be Jews but didn't believe as Jews believed. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that the Messiah had come, and so those Jews began to push those Christians out. There's a record of one edict that was issued by a rabbi that said that in order to belong to the synagogue, it was required to curse the name of Jesus Christ. Almost like confessing Christ as Lord for our church, this rabbi required his congregation to curse the name of Christ to be a member. Here's why the increasing distinction between Jews and Christians led to persecution. It's so important to understand. The Jews were allowed to not worship the emperor as long as they occasionally presented an offering and, and they paid a special tax. Christians didn't fall under that umbrella of protection. And so as the two became increasingly distinct, Christians became increasingly persecuted. Consider what that meant for Christians in Smyrna. This is a city committed to finding favor with Rome, which served as a guardian for imperial, imperial worship. They're an example for all other cities. They are supposed to do everything better than all other cities. They're the crown city. So what are they to do if the Romans are persecuting Christians? They should be leading the way. They should do it better than any other city, right? So Christians in Smyrna are facing persecution, and they're left with a choice. Deny Christ and remain a Jew exempted from emperor worship or face the very real threat of execution for their faith. It's to this church that Jesus says, I've seen your tribulations. Church, this morning, while we have not even begun to face the type of pressure or persecution known by these earlier, earliest Christians, we are on a road, I would suggest, that is leading toward a tribulation we have never seen before as Americans. As legislation, executive orders, and judicial decisions threaten our religious liberties and begin to restrict our freedom of speech, we face the very real possibility that the umbrella of protection intended by our forefathers and guaranteed by our Constitution may soon be stripped away. We're at risk of not being able to even speak truth to our children, let alone from the pulpits of our churches. To Christians like Joe Kennedy, a former high school football coach in the state of Washington who was fired for praying on the field after football games, the struggle is not something in the distant. It is not something in the unknown future. The struggle is here, and it's now. But lest we get confused, our battle is not against the society, though sometimes it feels like it is. It isn't against a presidential administration. It's not against a congressman or a judge. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The enemy who seeks to tear down the systems we seek to conserve and to criminalize the values we so strongly insist upon is none other than the devil, who 1 Peter 5.8 tells us prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, I would love to be an optimist this morning, and I'd love to stand before you and say that everything is going to be okay. 
I believe Scripture is consistent in its testimony that things will get worse before they get better. The enemy wants to squeeze your faith out of you. He wants to extinguish the light within you. Do you remember that song that we used to sing as little children? Maybe, maybe some of you didn't, but, but, but I sang this growing up, this little light of mine. This little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine. One of the verses of that song went, don't let Satan, what? Blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. The darker the times, the brighter our light must shine. We must remain faithful. We must not allow Satan, through the attempted suffocating of our flame by persecution, to extinguish the light that is within us. So fasten your seatbelts, church, because tribulation is on its way. It's what the church in Smyrna faced and would continue to face even to this very day in the city of Izmir, Turkey. And it's what you and I should expect as well. Here's the second commendation. It's for their poverty, their poverty. There are two Greek words that are used for poverty in the New Testament. One is it means having the basics, but not having anything extra, right? You've got just enough to get along. The second means not even having the basics. And it's the second word that is used here. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I see that you're poor. I see that you don't even have enough to get by. Why are these Christians poor? Because there was a direct tie between religion and the economy of their day. There were taxes to be paid to the temples. And, and when you worshiped and you attended those services, you also made contacts, business contacts. Those temples were places of connection, of networking. These Christians aren't a part of these networks and so they're suffering financially. It's not hard, given what we see with people being restricted in business dealings and even losing their jobs today over religious liberties to imagine a situation where Christians might find themselves jobless and desolate financially because they won't compromise their faith. That's where Smyrna's at. They're suffering financially because of their faith. To them, Jesus says, you are poor, yet you are rich. How can I be rich? The Christians in Smyrna must have asked. How can I have nothing and yet you say that I have everything? Here's why. Because scripture is clear that for every injustice and evil that is suffered by believers on earth, there is reward in heaven. Let me tell you something. When we face suffering for Christ, when we go without for his name, when we sacrifice, when we struggle, God will reward us. That doesn't make a lot of us feel comfortable. Who among us aspires for poverty? Who among us aspires for hard times? Those are not values. Those are not statuses that we want to have. But the economy of the kingdom of God is altogether different than our own. In Luke 6.20, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Luke 16, a poor man dies and is carried off by angels. In James 2.5, we're told that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich and in, in their faith and heirs of the kingdom. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God's heart for the poor is exceedingly evident. And what's more, we see that wealth too often stands in the way of salvation. Now, TV preachers won't tell you that. All the hip preachers with their tight jeans and fancy sneakers are not going to say that, right? They're going to tell you that if you just get it right, 
if you just put enough money in the offering plate, if you just add enough to their donations online, that, that everything is going to go great for you because God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That's not the Bible that I read. And it's not the Bible that the Smyrnans read. They're faithful, and yet they're poor. Such a message doesn't work in the slums of India where Christians live. It doesn't work in Puerto Rico where there are faithful brothers and sisters who are suffering and going without. It doesn't work in the inner city of Chicago or the hills of Appalachia where faithful disciples reside in desperate poverty. Many times, the most faithful are the most lowly and the most poor. To the church in Smyrna and to poor Christians around the globe today, the gospel declares that the values of the kingdom of God are not the values of this world. When you struggle financially with your eyes on Jesus Christ, you are considered blessed. And when your faith in Christ costs you, your inheritance in the kingdom of God only grows. When your faith costs you a job, when your faith costs you business, when your faith costs you a client, when your faith costs you a promotion, blessed are you, says Jesus. This is a mystery, the truth of which we will only one day fully understand, but, but it's understood by these early Christians in Smyrna who are among those who were poor in the world's eyes. And so for their poverty, Jesus also commends them. Third, he, he commends them for profanity. And I don't mean that they're cursing by the use of profanity. I mean they are being slandered. There are others that are, are cursing them. Others are slandering them. Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that he's seen the slander they have experienced. In their community, there's a group of people who call themselves Jews, but they really aren't Jews, Jesus says. These may have been people who didn't accept Jesus as Savior and Lord and are trying to push Christians out. That wouldn't be surprising because by the end of the first century, Christians were regarding themselves as true Jews and ethnic Jews as no Jews at all. He also may have been referring to ethnic Jews who were seeking refuge and protection in Judaism and were compromising their own faith. Whoever it was, this group of people are slandering Christians. And Smyrna wasn't the only church that's being slandered. Christians across the empire are being slandered. People are denigrating them. Multiple accusations have been made. You might, you might be surprised to hear some of them. One of the reasons for slander centered around communion. Because of the language that we use of Jesus' body and blood, early Christians had been falsely accused of cannibalism. In a similar way, um, they, they had misinterpreted what was known as agape feast. While it meant love in its most pure form and sacrificial way, those around the church thought that the agape feast was immoral and it was impure. Christians were also accused of atheism because they didn't worship the multitudes of gods that were available. They were accused of arson because they spoke of the fire of the Holy Spirit. They were accused of disloyalty to the state because of their refusal to worship the emperors. Satan was using people all around them to accomplish his purpose and stir up persecution through hateful gossip and outright lies of those who were Christians. And for enduring this slander, this blasphemy, this profanity, Jesus commends them. Continue on in your text with me and let's read verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't say their suffering is over. He doesn't say it's okay, your, your persecution, your poverty, the slander, this profanity, it's all, it's, it's, it's done, I'm gonna take care of it. No, 
He says it's going to continue on. He doesn't reach down and deliver them. He doesn't say your kids will be safe. You won't always be poor or this is just a season. You're going to get through it. Jesus points to even more suffering. And what's more, he gets specific and he says the devil is going to throw some of them into prison and they'll be tested. Tested how? Well, much like the Old Testament character Job, they, they may be tested to curse God and die, to give up their faith. They'll face tribulation like the crushing of grapes as Satan seeks to squeeze their faith out of them. And rather than telling these early Christians that he's going to show up, that he's going to break open the, the jail cells, perhaps cause their chains to fall off of them, Jesus gives them two imperatives, two words of counsel. If you're following along in your outlines, here's what the counsel to this church was, first of all, be fearless. Be fearless. Do not be afraid. It's the most common command in all of Scripture, and yet perhaps here, in situations like this, it's the most difficult to obey. How are you to remain fearless in the face of great persecution? Perhaps it's by recalling accounts like that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into a fiery furnace, but a fourth man was seen by the king who had the appearance like that of a son of the gods. Or maybe, maybe it's by remembering Jesus' words in the Great Commission to his followers that he would be with them even to the ends of the age. Could it be that fearlessness in the face of persecution means remembering the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39 when he wrote, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or maybe the church in Smyrna and others who had been persecuted throughout history of Christendom have reflected on Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28, when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Of things that are to come, of the suffering, of the persecution, the tribulations, the trials, Jesus says to this church, to you and I, do not be afraid. If Jesus counseled to those facing the possibility of actual imprisonment and even death for their faith was to be fearless, how much more ought we to be fearless? The Alpha and Omega who died and was resurrected was present with those who faced death for his name, fulfilling his promise to never leave them or forsake them, and he's present with you today. His nearness ought to be the source of courage for you. It ought to be a source of strength. Because it means you're never, never, never alone. Finally, Jesus says, be faithful. Be fearless, be faithful. Jesus died for them, and they must be willing to die for him. Death was not to be feared because Christ conquered the grave. While until Christ comes and takes us home, we will experience the first death. We need not fear that first death or whatever, it, whatever comes with it because as Christians, we have been saved from the second death. Revelation 21.8 tells us more about that second death when it says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, stand fast, even unto death. Be faithful knowing that I died for you because I conquered the grave, so will you. Don't be afraid of the first death because the second death has already been conquered for you. Yet I wonder if those receiving this letter had the same thought as do I. Will I be faithful? Have you ever wondered that? 
if a gun were put to your head today and you were asked to either deny Christ or stand fast, what would you do? Let me tell you, you know, I, I reflected on that question throughout this week, and let me tell you what I absolutely believe. Just as God does not leave us alone and his presence can bring us courage, so he does not abandon us in our struggles. We aren't left to our own devices or our own strength to make it through. God will hold us fast. There's a beautiful song for those lyrics that says, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. The one who Jude 24 says is able to keep us from stumbling. The one Philippians 1 6 says will bring the good work he began in us to completion. The one in 2 Thessalonians 3 3, we're told assures us will guard us against the evil one. The same one, the Alpha and the Omega, who died and rose again, will hold us fast, not because of our endurance or our reaching or our efforts, but because he made us his own. And in the end, we who are saints by the blood of the Lamb will persevere, not in the least because of our own doing, but entirely because of his. There's one particular citizen of Smyrna's life who had become a legend. He has become a legend. His name was Polycarp. I mentioned him earlier. A church father is trained by John. He was sent to Smyrna, and he became the overseeing missionary, the head shepherd, as it were, of all the pastors. Polycarp was arrested as an old man, he was tried. He was sentenced to death because he was unwilling to worship the emperor. And when brought to the arena, he was asked whether he wanted to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ and save his life. Here's what he said as they were preparing to burn him at the stake. His words have lived throughout history. For 86 years, I have served Christ. and He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? they lit him up, and they burned him to the stake. To the teacher, the leader, the pastor of that community, Jesus' words became real. Suffering is coming your way, Smyrna. Polycarp wasn't the first martyr for the Christian faith. That was Stephen in the book of Acts, you probably recall, and he wouldn't be the last. According to Fox's book of martyrs, five million believers died for Christ during this period of church history. Five million Yet the church of Smyrna grew and is alive today in the same city. For as the church father Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As we prepare to close this morning, there's one more thing I want to draw from the text. Jesus concluded his words in verse 10 and 11 to the church by saying this, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you're still following along in your outlines, our final point today is the comfort, the promise of the crown of life to those who overcome. Remember earlier I told you that Smyrna thought of themselves as being the crown of Asia Minor. We know that no matter how beautiful our city, no matter how gorgeous our home, no matter how luxurious our surroundings, ultimately everything around us will pass away. And there is only one crown that is worthy of our pursuit, and it's the crown of life. And it's only awarded to those who conquer, those who overcome, who's fearless and faithful in spite of persecution, poverty, and profanity. As we conclude this morning, imagine, imagine again that just for a moment that you're, that you're a Christian living in Smyrna. 
while it's a pluralistic society in which many gods were worshipped, and while the culture is overwhelmingly tolerant, your faith is the one faith that is not tolerated, and your beliefs are the one set of beliefs toward which society has become hostile. You've been told that you will either bow down and worship the emperor, or you'll face death. You've come together in prayer meetings, in worship services. You've been asking God for an answer to this horrible, frightening situation you're in. You're afraid for your life. Perhaps more than your own, you're afraid for the lives of your children and your grandchildren. You've been praying and you've been praying and one day you get this letter. It's a letter from Jesus Christ. And, and you rush back to your church. Imagine you come right to Calvary Hills and, and, and you gather other disciples around you and, and you open the letter and you begin to read and, and you're expecting an answer, perhaps a promise that everything's going to be all right. But Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, he says, I noticed your tribulations, your poverty. I've noticed the slander you're going through, and none of it is over. Church, while I can't be certain of it, I anticipate hard times are coming for us as Christians here in our nation. And while we may pray for deliverance, and we ought, and we ought to fight for every, everything we can to ensure that our religious liberties continue in our nation, and I'm not suggesting we lay down and give up, It may not be God's answer. Just as it was not the answer for Smyrna. My courage for you, meant for you this morning is to heed the words of Jesus who said, don't be afraid. Be faithful. His presence could give us courage and his faithfulness will allow us to persevere. And then, and only then, can we inherit the one crown that is worthy of our pursuit, the crown of would you pray?